One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Netta Joya. In this episode, Dr. Joya discusses important eye protection supplementation and blue filtering lenses. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. You know, with fish now, you know, you know, we always thought that fish is so healthy and it's important to eat, but you know, there's so many toxins now in, in, in fish. So we have to be careful. If you could talk about the smash fish concept and mm-hmm. low mercury fish. Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of the uh, women out there who were pregnant, you know, you had your little list of what foods you can eat and the fish that you can eat. So I always say, why do we, why do we actually only think about that when we're pregnant? You know, mercury levels and toxic load. Um, of course, we want to protect our child, but don't we also want to protect ourselves? So the smash is just an easy way to remember these high value omega-3 um, fish that also have low toxic load, S being salmon. I think salmon gets the biggest highlight, um, mackerel, anchovies. Um, so those are all few, a few of the smash and sardines and herring. Those are another example but salmon probably being the most applicable um, to target in your daily, you know, weekly diets uh, to increase your omega-3 ratios. Talk about omega-3s for a minute, the importance of the omega-3s, not only in the body, but also in the eye. Um, Omega-3 with, has gotten a lot of um, attention, primarily in the dry eye forum. Um, I think with, time, it's just become a part of our routine as optometrists to recommend omega-3s for dry eye, even if it's early dry eye versus advanced dry eye. Um, Omega-3 is well known to be, you know, very good in in, uh, anti-inflammation. And the other beauty of omega-3s, it's it's fat soluble and it can cross the cell membrane um, pretty well. So omega-3s, and omega-6s, which is found to be a certain, certain amount of omega-6s um, found to be pro-inflammatory, it's that ratio that we don't have um, that's balanced anymore because we find omega-6s in too many items from packaged goods to vegetable oils, et cetera. And we don't eat enough foods that have a high omega-3 content um, to help reduce that ratio where the omega-6s are too much in the body, which are pro-inflammatory to help with things that are known to be connected to inflammation, such as dry eye, which would be one of the biggest things. 
And also macular degeneration. I mean, uh, another thing that gets lost is macular degeneration and um, patients who are in that 65 and above category, they tend to have diets that lack in a lot of foods because uh, malnutrition in our elderly population is a big problem. They don't eat as much. They don't absorb as much. Um, metabol everything metabolically is a little bit slower. So um, fish oil too and omega-3s and knowing which fish to eat as a senior is probably very important too, um, especially with macular degeneration. As far as autoimmune conditions uh, with, with, with omega-3s and cardiovascular conditions, how does omega-3s help us in that area? Um, autoimmune, I like to always think about autoimmune as um, the first, my first uh, go-to is, is gut health um, with autoimmune, of course. Um, I think that's, that's pretty well, well versed in uh, the functional medicine um, world where autoimmune and gut health go hand in hand. Um, fish oils even help with gut health. So, and not just being an anti-inflammatory um, uh, type of uh, supplement or omega-3s as a supplement, but it also helps with gut health, which I think also would help with any autoimmune condition um, because some autoimmune conditions actually stem from the gut. So having a good balance in the uh, gut microbiome is very very important. Um, so it, it's, it's a no-brainer where fish oil really helps with anti-inflammation, but also helps with other um, body issues, which can translate to symptoms like autoimmune. And that's selenium and iodine. Yeah, those are selenium, iodine. They're, they're very um, specific. Selenium, you don't really want to go over a certain amount, you know, uh, the joke is always one Brazil nut gives you enough per day. Iodine is also another uh, hot topic, especially with thyroid dysfunction um, and people being anti-salt, you know, where are we getting our iodine from? It might be lacking as well in a lot of our uh, general diets. Um, where uh, a lot of females may actually need more iodine versus what they're eating in their general diets. So those um, micronutrients, you know, we have to be cautious with balance and that, that brings in, you know, iron, that brings in copper and zinc. Um, and a lot of these ratios are very easily found um, online where you can really target the proper ratios to, to uh, help supplement these patients. You brought up a great point before that as people get older and even some young people, they don't absorb their food very well. Do you have any tips to help people absorb the food better, to absorb the nutrients out of the food a little bit better? Um, the first thing is how to, how to prepare a meal. Um, knowing and going back into my smoothie uh, situation with cooking spinach a little bit, um, once you once you're able to recommend certain preparations, you're going to Im improve the absorbability. Also knowing if something's fat soluble versus water soluble is also very important. I have plenty of patients who take ridiculous amounts of vitamin C since the pandemic. And, you know, I always ask, did you know that a lot of this, you just kind of get rid of, you're actually not absorbing a lot of it because you're taking too much in one sitting. 
Um, so understanding how vitamins actually get absorbed and also how uh, nutrients get absorbed in foods is very important. But the problem is one of the biggest problems in this country is gut health, uh, gut health, acid reflux. What are we, what are a lot of our patients on their on um, PPI, um, other, other things that reduce the amount of um, minerals and even micronutrients, uh, macronutrients that we absorb through our foods because they're taking a medication that is reducing the, the absorbability, uh, but helping with their symptom of their gut issues. So gut health is very important and helping patients understand gut health, whether it's adding a probiotic, increasing prebiotic fibers, so that we can actually have a more robust um, way of processing what we eat um, outside of understanding if they're fat soluble, water soluble, et cetera, and how to prepare foods. How about digestive enzymes, hydrochloric acid? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's helpful? Um, 100%, I mean, think about PPIs. I mean, these pa a lot of patients lack the intrinsic factor to even absorb B12, and they're you know they they're on these acid reducers, and sometimes the problem is not that they're making too much acid; they're actually making not enough acid, um, and that's where digestive enzymes come into play. Um, we even have now digestive enzyme cocktails with bromelain, etc., that help with. Um, your meal time, where you actually take it with the meal to get that food properly broken down um, because it is a chronic issue, especially with acid reflux, um, which is very, very common now. Whether you're 16 years, I have patients who I see that are 16 on acid reflux reducers, and now it's over the counter. Um, think about how many patients have IBS and nobody even knows why, how are they processing the foods? Um, how are they absorbing uh, leaky gut syndrome, which is becoming a very common um, condition that we're speaking about and now going into mainstream, which is a great thing because that's what I had. Um, I thought it was, it was a joke when I heard it, but now I, I understand it. Um, you know, where, where are we setting up these patients long-term if we don't address digestion? And let's talk about nutritional status and some of the testing that you think is helpful to, to evaluate somebody's nutritional status. Um, I, I think vitamin D has had a very welcoming um, introduction in the past year for primary care physicians that I've seen are testing the vitamin D more consistently. I think all the B vitamins can be tested through the serum. The problem is, is that some of the micronutrients that we want to test are actually untestable in the serum, such as magnesium. Um, so there are certain valuable tests that are done through the serum. Then there's other valuable tests done um, within the red blood cell itself that we can get actual nutritional um, uh, pro uh, profiles on patients. Then we have gut um, profiles, which are done through stool sampling, where we can uh, check for secretory IgA. Um, there are many new tools that we're getting with new labs where we can send for complete profiles of um, minerals and vitamins that might be not through your classic lab core, 
um, but they're out there and they're, they're of high value and patients are really interested in this. And now we have consumer, direct to consumer lab testing as we saw with um, 23andMe, which is really getting into the nutrition uh, world and um, you know, finding nutri nutrient status where the patient's finding it on their own through these labs that are going straight to consumer. So we're, we're behind in the medical field being proactive and testing the nutritional status of our patients, but it's never too late to start. Well, micronutrient testing, are you a fan of Spectrocell or Genova with their micronutrient tests? Um, I don't love to talk about specific brands, but I could say I've, test, I've used them both. Um, and I don't put weight in one thing because I know it keeps changing, but yes, I do. I do use those, those types of tests. Um, Vibrant Labs also has some good, um, tests as well. And, and I do LabCorp too, because think about it. I mean, with those, with those newer labs, they don't, they're not covered by insurance. So sometimes we also have to manipulate general blood work and try to get as much information as we can um, and use those extra labs as almost like complements. We talked about the smash fish before and omega-3s. And how about the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio? Um, it's tilted. You know, we have that average American, you know, we're in that 20s, 6 to 3 ratio. We want to be more in that 4-ish uh, number. Um, I started doing Omega Quant in the office uh, this past, I would say, six months. And, you know, what I love about what I'm doing is that I'm actually not just gearing towards nutrition centric patients. I'm introducing them to this, even if they're not looking for it. So I have had patients with tilted uh, omega six to three ratios where they're not where, where we want to target in that four ish range who are taking fish oil already. So these are, these are, some of these patients are proactive and the ratios are still off. So that's something to be said, um, knowing what you're targeting when you do supplement. When somebody has a low omega-3, omega-6 ratio, what does that put them at risk for? Um, I think, you know, generically speaking, you can go into cardiovascular function. I mean, um, and how many of my patients have cardiovascular disease? Uh, it becomes, it's almost like an everyday conversation between hypertension, uh, cholesterol issues, um, you know, history of heart attacks, stents, et cetera. So, you know, it puts them more at risk in that category. And remember, it's, it's just an added function of the inflammation in the body. So, you know, if they have, let's just say an autoimmune, like a rheumatoid and their six to three ratio is off, can that be just another add-on to why they're actively in pain? Um, so I, I think cardiovascular is the most um, obvious, but it goes into almost every other condition um, because it's all about that inflammation. And if we can put as many, get as many markers to a target amount, um, we can reduce even the symptoms or reduce the level that the patient has of a chronic disease. Again, it's a why not. Before you talked about uh, proton pump inhibitors and how it could decrease absorption of certain nutrients, what are the 
what are some other medications that may decrease uh, nutritional status? Um, I think we have heard about statins and CoQ10 um, because that's basically the the uh, way that it's reducing the amount of cholesterol is through that CoQ10 um, uh, cascade. So it's going to reduce CoQ10 in general. So patients who are on statins complementary should be on a CoQ10. And a lot of their cardiovascular doctors or primary cares don't put them on it. Statins also can reduce selenium, um, omega-3s, um, PPIs, as we said, B12, a lot of them basically almost all of the minerals um, get reduced with acid reducing medications, even vitamin C. Birth control is known to reduce um, B vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin C. Um, and a lot of our, the um, metformin family, which, you know, our diabetes medications uh, really reduce a lot of our B vitamins. And what do a lot of our, our diabetic patients have, they can have neuropathies, which we also know that are, uh, are linked to having um, unstable bees. So it's almost like, you know, we give a medication and we can alter other, other things that can uh, show up as other symptoms. Do you have certain tips that you recommend to your patients uh, to help them get healthy, you know, as far as pre-cutting their vegetables and Mm -hmm. uh, about servings of fruits and vegetables per day. If you could go over some of your, some of your tips for our audience. Um, I like to give a lot of um, dittos and sheets written out because what happens when you start talking too much with your patients, they start forgetting things. So with, um, with my tips, I usually give them uh, pre-written pre um uh, PDFs, if they're computer savvy, of how to eat healthily, um, how to target, you know, foods that are in that uh, fruit and vegetable categories. But we have to also include herbs and teas and spices and whole grains that are healthy for the body. So I give them a laundry list of those foods. Um, I also tell them how to cook better. We don't want to use high heat. Um, you want to slow cook things if you can, uh, because you really get more of that nutrient value to stay in that food versus high heat. Um, I give a, a list of oils to avoid and oils to cook with, especially with certain types of heat. Um, olive oil, you know, how to, how to choose the right olive oils. Um, and if you are cooking with high heat, which, which oils to use, because that can change um, the oxidation of that food as well and make it pro-inflammatory. Um, you know, we, we give charts out for checklists, meaning like rainbow foods to, to give them actually the list of these foods that are within different color, uh, colors so that the patient knows what to see at the grocery store and maybe go a little bit outside of the box and start adding variety into their diet. Um, so those are just a few, but I think really as primary care optometrists, the first thing is to streamline the way you recommend. So having um, a folder ready to give to these patients, um, they really, really appreciate that extra mile that you're, you're doing to ensure that they're at least getting the information that's proper and making the right choices for diet. Um, it's a small change, you know, not everybody's going to 
you know, I always use myself in the, as an example. Not everyone's going to change their whole life in one week. And, um, you know, and it's frustrating because sometimes you want patients to be healthier quicker, but you have to be patient with them. And maybe that first year you're giving them certain recommendations. They may take one out of the 10 and the next year they'll take two out of the 10 because that's the one thing about optometry. We're so lucky. And we see patients typically once a year, what other doctor do they get a 30 minute evaluation with once a year, know their patient uh, history, their family history. And we can really be a big tool in nutritional intervention for these patients' uh, life goals and chronic disease um, improvement. What oils do you recommend for cooking in low heat? What oil do you recommend for high heat? What oils do you recommend that people stay away from? Um, I think the easiest is all your vegetable oils, your corn oils. You wanna really just stay away from them, period, if possible. Um, Extra virgin olive oil, I usually don't cook with. I use it cold pressed as well as avocado oil um, and even hemp oil. With higher heat, I, you know, some of the most soluble oils are um, MCT-based oils, which is in the coconut family. So, you know, I don't really love frying foods, but if I had to, I usually use the coconut family um, oils. You can even get um, coconut oils that do not have the smell of coconut now for cooking if you don't want that coconut um, uh, smell or flavor. So those are the few, but most oils you really, you know, are not really good for high heat, believe it or not. Um, it's more in the, um, it's the corn oils and the vegetable oils you want to just like get rid of. And those are the, the oils that most patients or people go towards for high heat. Let's talk about vision and cognition. And, you know, there's so much research now about the eye doctor in the future may be able to be the first doctor to diagnose somebody who's at risk for Alzheimer's. What are some of the things that we find in the eye that show that a patient may be at risk for Alzheimer's? And talk about cognition and vision. Um, Alzheimer's is kind of near and dear to me. My grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's. So I saw firsthand what happened in my family. Alzheimer's is, is really tough on the whole family. Um, there's a lot of research being done in Alzheimer's, why it's kind of called the diabetes type three. And um, the prevalence of it is increasing. And as I said before, it's affecting not just the patient, but a lot of the family members. Eye care will become a part of the Alzheimer's um, early detection, I feel. I think it's obviously very primitive right now in terms of all the research and it's, um, you know, we're in that embryo phase. But knowing what's coming out with um, the connections of the, um, you know, the retinal tissue and brain tissue, as well as the OCT scan, which, you know, is above and beyond my understanding in terms of how to how to correlate that with early markers of Alzheimer's, it's, it's, um, we're in that, we're in that place that I think we're, we're going to be able to help with early detection, but what does that mean? Right. So, um, going back to the functional medicine, um, strategy, if we do help with early detection with whatever outlets we're given in terms of technology and eye care, what do we do about it? Right. 
um, how are we going to be representing the prevention side? Um, and I think going forward, we're going to be exposed more to uh, cognition protocols, um, you know, that have been really um, exposed more with uh, doctors like Dale Bredenson, uh, with his Alzheimer's protocols and brain health protocols that are phenomenal. And um, collaborating with physicians that understand those those types of approaches to brain health and cognition and uh, dementia prevention. Um, you know, I, I don't see like a why not because, you know, in eye care, we, we really want to go forward with the prevention side and help these other subspecialties, whether it be neurology or just general um, nutrition and give them the heads up as to if we're finding something early, how can we give that exposure to that patient to a better lifestyle to reduce those risk factors. And I did a great podcast with Dale Bredesen. He he's really he has a lot of specifics. So people watching this want to go back and watch that for the help to decrease your risk of Alzheimer's. Watch that podcast. Now there are so, certain eye conditions that we have that that patients have that that are linked to nutritional defects. A lot of patients will come in and their eyelid is twitching. We call that myochymia. What is that typically uh, related to? Um, I jo the joke with my friends is uh, I'm the magnesium pusher. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and I get this, you know, we get this all the time. A patient is very uh, nervous because their eye is jumping and, you know, it's always, is it your eye or your eyelid? And, you know, nine times out of 10, it's their, their eye lid. Um, and what did we learn in school, right? We learned not lack of sleep. We learned excessive caffeine, high stress. Well, guess what? guess what all those things do? Um, it reduces magnesium, which is water-soluble micronutrient, and um, we're deficient already in magnesium. Where do we get magnesium from the earth? Do we eat earth-friendly foods a lot? No. Um, are we eating a high level of green leafy vegetables? No. So now we get a little extra stressed. We have something um, environmentally, and now we have a magnesium depletion. I literally cure most of my eyelid twitches within a couple of days and patients stay on these, this magnesium that I give them that is like this uh, magical pill. And, you know, it's just, it's fundamentally such an easy diagnosis and your patients will love you for that. The one thing I do um, note though, magnesium oxide is the one that I do not give. Um, I usually give magnesium glyconate. That's my favorite. There are other good forms, but magnesium glyconate is my favorite. And you using a pill or a powder and how many milligrams? Have you um, I usually, I usually give it as a pill if it's easier on the patient versus the, you know, dissolving. My goal is always 300 to 400 milligrams daily. Um, taking it at night can calm the patient down too for better sleep. Um, so, you know, I, I usually say take it at night if possible, but now we have some really great powders as well. Um, if they find that easy to take. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit oyebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today.
And sometimes people look at their front of their eye in the white part, and they'll see these little tiny hemorrhages. What could that be related to? Yeah, uh, conjunctival little microhemes. Um, vitamin C lacking. I azorbic uh, acid. I always recommend that. And um, vitamin C you can't really get from. You have to. You can't make it. So you have to get it from your environment, from your food. Um, and that's another problem in our, in our population. We are not getting enough of vitamin C consistently. That's the other, the, the other issue. It gets depleted quickly. So uh, another easy one is vitamin C. And as I said, I, I've been, I've been loving the quercetin vitamin C combination and, uh, patients, patients really love it too. The one thing I do, um, caution with vitamin C with the buffered form some of them have high pot potassium. And if your patient has a lower blood pressure, you wanna be uh, a little bit careful with that. And with vitamin D, when you recommend vitamin D, do you recommend it with vitamin K2? Once I hit the higher amounts, like 3000 up, 5000, absolutely. Um, you know, vitamin D technically on the lower level might be already in the multivitamin, which would have most good multivitamins will, will also have a little bit of K in there. Um, vitamin D is a guessing game. Again, it's such an easy test to know and you, you know, you should target it based on the serum testing, not by a guess, unless you're in the uh, maintenance level where, you know, I usually recommend at least one to 3000, if not 5,000 in some patients. Vitamin A can get confusing, and vitamin A was big in the United States, lack of vitamin A maybe many years ago. It's not something we talk about much anymore because that's one vitamin that I guess a lot of people do get in their diet with beta carotene. You don't see mm -hmm. a lot of lack of vitamin A, but vitamin A is still very important. If you can discuss vitamin A and uh, the different forms and how what vitamin A does, to help us and um, as well. Absolutely. Um, vitamin A we know is great for dry eye, corneal health. Um, the one problem with uh, beta carotene, there's actually two little problems with beta carotene I see with vitamin A. One, it has to be converted, right? So if you look at the supplements, when you give a vitamin A, um, if you don't read past that part of it, you won't know what form is being given in that supplement. So some patients are taking multivitamins that have a high level, very high level of beta carotene in them, which is listed as a vitamin A, which yes, technically it is a, you know, pro form. It has to be converted to a vitamin A in your body. The other problem is when these patients are taking very, very high levels of beta carotene, which is found in a lot of these supplements, the question mark becomes, does it compete with lutein and zeaxanthin? absorption. So that's another little side thing that I always look at in my patient supplementation, because I don't want too high beta carotene, because that's actually not technically vitamin A. Um, the retinols and all of those things are, you know, vitamin A, and it gets a little bit dicey because vitamin A, what's the biggest fear with vitamin A is always, um, you know, toxicity, right? So with going back to pregnant patients, it's toxicity, how much vitamin A as a supplement or they avoid supplements with vitamin A, but vitamin A is still needed in the diet. Now going back to the diet and not going into the beta carotene type of vitamin A, um, 
is your patient vegetarian, vegan? They might have lacking vitamin A. There's certain vitamin A, because again, it's fat soluble, that a patient might not be taking the correct amounts dietarily and may still need it as a supplement. We just have to be cautious as to how much we give. And you can definitely refer to the, um, the uh, RDA requirements, et cetera, and the upper limits of vitamin A. A lot of these vitamins, it's, you know, I get the question always, like, how do you know what vitamins? I say, I look at a chart. Um, we have great, great ways of look, uh, finding out what vitamin forms best, the, you know, a, a to-do list of your best forms and upper limits um, of certain vitamins that you want to avoid. And you can do this for your patients because they don't actually look. Um, and if you can be that doc that helps them look, you, you really win them over. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a win-win again with, with uh, figuring out what the upper limits of certain vitamins are. But yeah, with vitamin A, it gets a little dicey because of that beta carotene thought of as vitamin A. You know, do we have to worry about uh, beta carotene in foods like sweet potatoes and things like that? Um, going back to Synergy, I'm going to say no, right? Because it's, it's all about, that's, that's a whole different way of eating. So um, when you eat the food, you still, you get balance. When we start talking about vitamins and supplements, which in eye care, it's huge. You know, we talk about certain supplements, you know, repetitively, repetitively, um, we have to be cautious with what the patient is taking outside of what you recommend. So no, I would say eat all the fruits and vegetables. I would not, I'm not, I'm never going to say don't eat fruits and vegetables because I think there's too much high beta carotene in there. The food. Yes. The vitamins be cautious. And then, you know, people are, it's surprising because vitamin A has autoimmune uh, function for it. Anti, you know, anti-infective, mm -hmm. uh, you know, antiviral properties. So vitamin A does a lot of things. And one of the things is opsin and, and working on the retina for night, night vision. Yeah. yeah. If you could talk a little bit about that for a second. I mean, um, we, you know, with vitamin A um, deficiency, I mean, do we really see it much as a society? And, you know, we don't really, um, but we can extrapolate whether or not the patient's getting enough for optimal um, eye health versus just baseline eye health, right? So I would say for um, night vision, going back into the lutein zeaxanthin category as well, you know, vitamin A is necessary for physiological changes of your cellular, of the retinal pigment epithelium and things to actually cascade so that you can see well. So yes, absolutely. We, we need to be cognizant of it. Is it one of my top choices where I, you know, go therapeutic in vitamin A? No, I'm not comfortable with that right now in terms of supplementation. Um, but I do think there is value and there's, there's even studies with retinitis pigmentosa that's been um, uh, looked at with vitamin A. So yes, it, it's very, very, very near and dear to eye health. Um, absolutely. What do you recommend for vegans who won't eat fish to get omega-3s? Well, how do omega-3s go to the fish? You know, so that's, 
So you kind of bypass the fish um, and algae base, things like that, uh, omega threes. But really, it's I'm always you know I'm always trying to talk about things that we can add, but we also have to subtract. So patients who are vegan or vegetarian, especially the ones that are a little bit on the unhealthy side, which does happen because your carb load tends to go up when you're vegan, vegetarian, your omega-6s start to go up. So um, it's not just about trying to find a good omega-3 supplement that can really help with improving your uh, DHA balance and EPA, et cetera. It's also trying to teach them how to reduce their omega-6 intake because it tends to be higher um, because of their food choices to avoid um, animal products. You brought up uh, intestinal permeability before or leaky gut syndrome as we finish up here. And the microbiome, I know is something that's near and dear to you, something you're very interested. Uh, uveitis, there has been studies about uveitis and uh, an abnormal microbiome in the gut. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, with uveitis in particular, um, I actually did a little uh, a, uh, a little paper for the Ocular uh, Wellness and Nutrition Society for uveitis and gut function. Um, you know how it works is the T cells that are pro-inflammatory are found in the gut before the eye. So the question is, is that is the uveitis activated before it even gets to the eye, right? Um, what else is uveitis connected to? Autoimmune, right? Um, a lot of autoimmune conditions are linked to microbiome imbalance and leaky gut syndrome. So for chronic uveitis, it would be a very plausible uh, target to make sure that those patients have good gut function. Um, and again, these patients are suffering and why, why not improve that inflammatory balance of the T helper cells and the T, uh, T cells that are pro-inflammatory in the gut, balance that out for them to help reduce symptoms of chronic uveitis. And I even, I even have patients that don't have um, classic uveitis. I've had, I've had episcleritis in young patients that I'll just run a, some sort of Crohn's panel or a gastro panel and a lot of times I've found that there's something off. So it's, you know, again, these are like my N of one trials here at the office, but um, I do think that uveitis and gut function um, based on the few papers that I have read and written about um, has a very, very strong link. Very interesting because we deal with a lot of autoimmune disease in the eye, as we talked about at the beginning, how the eye is so complex mm -hmm. and, you know, part of, treatment i mean we obviously we have to protect the eye when they have uveitis but part of the treatment should be uh helping people with gut function and decreasing uh intestinal permeability and that should be in our toolbox yeah and i think it will be i think slowly but surely as we get more ods understanding functional medicine and going into extra uh schooling or even just their own research and as the studies come out which they are coming out um, to, to help solidify that connection and, and really get other docs to believe in it with our MDs out there, our PhDs out there, um, and really collaborate in, into this movement. I want to finish up with blue light and melatonin. 
you could talk to me about blue light and there's so much noise around blue light in our profession and uh and then there's the functional medicine people who are really big on filtering out blue light but Mm -hmm. in our profession it's more controversial Uh, tell me what you think about filtering blue light and the the good, the bad, and ugly with different types of bulbs that we, you know, if we LEDs incandescent being in the sun, is the sun mm-hmm. really bad for us? Uh, what do you think? Um, it's so blue light, it should blue light, um, the blue light category should be a category that optometrists should dom- dominate, but we don't. Um, what I love about blue light in, in terms of the physiological approach versus the mechanical approach, I present it as a melatonin modulator, okay? Um, Because it is. So uh, melatonin is new. The uh, receptors for blue light in the eye is not something I really honed in on in optometry school because even that wasn't really spoken about much. It's not a rod, it's not a cone, it's a ganglion cell. So think about how new this this connection is, is how the light in our eye actually talks to the pineal gland to secrete melatonin, which is endogenously made in our bodies. And blue light is how we actually turn it on and off. So we, as eye doctors, unbeknownst to us, can be manipulating our patient's melatonin levels. Now, this is the way, the way that I see blue light in optometry, the reason why I see it's controversial is that we always bring the macula into the mix macular damage, correct? So for me, I kind of take that out of the mix because why not? Of course, I want to protect the eye if I can. And I'm not even going to get into that that whole conversation, but I will tell you that we should be really honing in on melatonin, not just the, the macula. Um, it's, it's obvious. And we know that this is, this is actually, this is proven that there's a connection. And my, it's sad that I, when I look up melatonin and blue light glasses and things like that, the articles are usually written by not an eye doctor, but by somebody in the functional medicine arena. And I think we should be really the, the forward thinkers in that. Um, because melatonin is needed for a lot of things, not just sleep. We, we've used it as the sleep hormone, but there's uh, melatonin receptors all throughout our bodies. And it's almost a super antioxidant. There's a lot more to melatonin that we even understand right now. So um, long-term, when we get blue light from our screens that I'm talking to you on, from the LED light that it's at peaking at a, a blue light spectrum uh, of the visible spectrum, um, are we damaging our circadian rhythm? In addition to, again, not talking about the macula, but our circadian rhythm, are we altering this? And the short answer is we don't know, but I'm going to guess and say probably is sleep a problem? Absolutely. Sleep is a problem just like uh, nutrition is a problem in this country. And we have, we have an actual um, responsibility as eye doctors to learn about blue light, learn about circadian rhythm, learn about how we need natural light outdoors to help promote cortisol balance with melatonin throughout the day and reduce our triggers to, um, to that turn off the melatonin cascade at night because we need it to sleep. 
Um, I'm very, very passionate about this. And I've only just gotten into this probably in the past year more aggressively because of how much misinformation is out there. And I hope in the next five years, I will be in this even more aggressively because I, I think this is really, really important and I care. When we're outside, we get the full spectrum of light. Absolutely. And we need that. We need yeah. that full spectrum of light. But when we're looking at digital devices, we're getting unopposed blue light. Now, because it's not balanced with infrared and UV and all the other parts of the spectrum, do you recommend using uh, glasses that filter out some of the blue light or all of the blue light when you're looking at a digital device? Um, I re recommend it all the time, but I also give them recommendations of time. So um, another thing that you probably know is blue light is not regulated, blue light glasses. So it's a problem. We don't know what what one is doing, what the other one's doing, how much, how little, and it's still up for you know conversation because we still are learning about what certain brands are doing. They keep changing the amount that they're um, filtering. So we have to keep up with this and knowing how much blue light to reduce about three to four hours before bedtime, you know, you, you want to reduce it the most amount of at that time of day versus daytime where you wanna actually be okay with it, especially outdoor blue light. The blue light that we, uh, restriction that we use on our glasses outside of a full tint or that yellowish brownish tint is not a high level reduction. So um, I do caution patients that use it all day long because I do have some proactive patients that just wanna use that yellow tint all day long and I, and I caution against that. And how about different light bulbs in the house? Like at night, do you recommend that people might use an LED type of light bulb or even a red light? Yeah, yeah. I actually, so if you don't know already, incandescent lights were pretty much taken off the market um, for, you know, for reducing um, issues with, uh, with um, energy. So personally, everything in my house is LED because it's, this is the way of the world, but I proactively bought LEDs that have reduced blue spectrum. So you can do that, especially the LEDs that are in your room that you're using um, the most towards the end of the day. So you can find these new light bulbs. It's becoming more of a thing. Um, new, more and more companies are, are uh, promoting it and actually launching them. So if you can use red, it's just harder to find. And it's, it's a little difficult to see with, but there are uh, blue light reducing light bulbs now that are LED based. Is there anything that you'd like to bring up that we didn't cover today? Um, I wish, I mean, I guess we could talk about functional medicine and eye care for hours upon hours. And um, that's, that's the beauty of it. I think one of the biggest things for me is uh, I had a personal journey. I'm only one person and I want to help as many patients as possible. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a PhD. I don't publish papers left and right. I am a normal primary care optometrist. So I want other optometrists and other eye care professionals that want to start integrating nutrition into their offices to understand that this is doable. And if you have a passion for it, you believe in it, you can make it work. Um, so I just want to plant the seed uh, for, for really just inspiring other doctors to, to start doing it and also to become a part of the Ocular Wellness and Nutrition, Nutrition Society. Um, we're lucky to have them. There's not a lot of professions that have that option um, to really expose us to high level studies that link eye care, 
uh, eye disease and nutrition. I want to thank Dr. Netta Joya for joining me today. She's a wealth of information. Uh, people want to find out more about you. How can they do that? Um, pretty easy. Go to our um, office website, integrativevision.com. And uh, we have our information on there, contact info, phone number, email, et cetera. Again, that's integrativevision.com. I want to thank you again. And thank for, you for having me. Uh, thank you. And for Open Your Eyes, this is Dr. Kerry Gill. Please stay well. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.